Hey, everybody. Welcome to Battleground, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. I'm David Pluff, and this will be my last episode as host of Battleground. Steve Schmidt and I started this podcast back in the uh, fall of 2020. It was intended just to do seven or eight episodes, old adversaries coming together to talk about the 2020 election. We had such a great time. We continued uh, into the historic aftermath, the battle to actually make sure the election counted, as well as the first few you know, weeks of the Biden administration. But the time is right now to hand this off to a new set of hosts. And so I want to thank all of you listeners for uh, joining us on this journey. So many of you decided to spend a little bit of time with us every week. also want to thank all the amazing guests we've had on Battleground and to the team at Recount who've made sure we put together a great product every week. So I'm excited to announce that the new hosts of Battleground are Amanda Littman and Faz Shakir. A bunch of you probably know both of them, but let me uh, give you a kind of a formal introduction of their lives and their accomplishments. Amanda Littman is the co-founder and executive director of Run for Something, an organization that recruits and supports young, diverse, progressive Democrats to run for local office. She uh, is a seasoned campaign operative, and she's really just done remarkable work. Run for Something's played an integral role in young progressive candidates winning elections around the country. And that's how we build back. And Faz is one of the most experienced progressive strategists in the country. He worked for Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. He then ran all the political work as national political director for the ACLU. Faz uh, also most memorably was Bernie Sanders' national campaign manager in 2020. Bernie Sanders ran such a strong, inspiring race. Faz is just a terrific campaign manager, policy expert, and somebody I think you guys will all learn a lot from. I couldn't be more excited that they are taking the baton at Battleground, and I can't wait to listen to them every week. So Amanda and Faz, welcome to Battleground. You are going to be guests for a little bit, and then you are going to be hosts (laughs) as this podcast unfurls itself. Hello, David. Hi. So Amanda, what got you motivated to get interested in politics and then get deeply involved in politics. And what keeps you motivated today? I first got involved in politics in high school. I grew up outside D.C. in the Virginia suburbs. I skipped a day of class to go see Barack Obama speak before he announced he was running for president. And I was hooked. I thought to myself, I want to work for that man one day. So when I decided to pick a college, (laughs) I picked a school based on where I could ultimately work for his presidential campaign. So I went to Northwestern. I got an internship on the re-elect. I was hired before I graduated, worked for the campaign through to election day, then for wind down, then went and worked for his nonprofit organizing for action for a year. Moved down to Florida, worked on the governor's race, moved to New York to work for Secretary Clinton's campaign. About a week after the election, I heard from a friend from college. Hey, Amanda, I'm thinking about running for office. You've been working in this field. I'm a public school teacher here in Chicago. What do I do? And I did not have an answer for him because at the time, if you were young, if you were newly excited about politics and you wanted to do more than vote or volunteer, there was nowhere you could go that would answer your call. Right. And that to me felt like a symptom of massive problems in the Democratic Party. So reached out to a whole bunch of folks, one of whom became my co-founder, Ross Morales Riquetto, and we wrote a plan and we built a website and then we launched Run for Something on Inauguration Day four years ago, thinking it would be really small. We would get 100 people in the first year who wanted to run. 1,000 people signed up in the first week. As of today, more than 75,000 people have signed up. We've helped elect about 500 young people all across the country, mostly women, mostly people of color. And when I think, like, what has kept me going over the last four years, it is 
being a part of their journey. It is seeing what happens when someone realizes they can take ownership of democracy in a really meaningful way and go from person who cares to candidate to elected official who's really like a public servant who gives a shit and then does something with it. It is, it's, it's really cool. Absolutely. So Fez, you know, you've been in the thick of things for a long time. I'm sure like Amanda, like me, you got involved in the beginning because there's things you cared about and you realized that who we elect is the route to all change or lack thereof. Are you as motivated today as you were back in the day? Yes. And it has been always that injustices tend to drive me and my desire to stay involved in politics. Uh, I got involved post 9-11 around the issues of war and the Iraq war, certainly in opposition to it, but then all of the variety of other things that the George W. Bush administration was doing that were contrary to my values. And since that time, (laughs) no shortage of injustices have continued to metastasize on the scene. And I have gotten much more engaged, obviously, in domestic politics and issues around corporate accountability, who tends to get a free ride and who has to struggle. And those are certainly the issues that still drive me to this day, kind of bring that populist lens to a lot of the work that I do. Amanda, so when you think about progressives, what's the one or two things you think we get wrong from a conventional wisdom standpoint? Like if you could sort of just snap your fingers and correct it, what would those be? I think there's probably two things I would point to. I've been thinking about this a lot. One, we tend to operate from a place that assumes people are paying attention. Oh, great point. And I think one of the biggest divides among the American populace is like the people who pay attention to politics, which is a very small amount, and everybody else. So we assume if we have the right argument, we could just have the flashiest ads, like Obviously, we will win, but most people are too busy. They have shit going on. And you know, even over the Trump era and even in the pandemic, when it feels like we're plugged in all the time, it's still the case that most people probably couldn't name the vice president, can't name a Supreme Court justice, don't know who the Speaker of the House is. Like, it's not their priority. So keeping that in mind as we think about what are we doing to not just rebuild the brand of the party, but rebuild the brand of government, which people equate with the party. And that means actually governing and doing things that make people's lives better which is one of the reasons why I think local government is so important, but that's a conversation for another time. So smart, yeah. The other place that I think progressives, and I will especially say progressive sort of politicians, actors, operatives, what have you, get a little in our own heads about is the activists that fight for communities do not always speak for those communities, which creates a lot of tension. So, you know, for example, Black Lives Matter activists pushing against a criminal justice reform bill in Congress. That is not to say that either of them are right or wrong. It is just a a fact of the matter we have right now and that often the grass tops and the voters are not on the same place. And that's okay. The grass tops are supposed to bring the voters with them or push the voters along or push the candidates and elected officials along to, to get the voters where they are. But when you start equating the two, it's how you get candidates that often aren't where their voters are, but are where the activists are. Right. A lot of little R's there. But I think it's a place where in, in the conversation about whose voice is really important, it's often hard to maintain some perspective there. So, Faz, I'm, I'm dying to hear your thoughts on this. So what are the one or two things you think progressives most get wrong? either about the progressive movement or about politics in America, um, if you could kind of snap your fingers, where would you like to see people's knowledge base increase? Well, I think that when I define the progressive movement, it really comes from a place of people who care and think about issues first. 
you know, I've worked in politics for a long time. And there sometimes is as a dichotomy of people who think of politics first and say, well, what's the politics of what's possible here? And let's focus on that and operate within the four corners. And a lot of my friends in the progressive movement, I think, try to see their role and our role as changing the politics of what's possible. So yeah, that is historically how we've done things. However, we should think outside the box, change the way we engage our politics on this, and think about it being substantive, issues-driven, that there are outcomes and results that matter here. And even if the politics doesn't necessarily line up with them at the moment, it's our job to try to change the politics to address these meaningful outcomes and results that we want that would have significant impact on people's lives. And that's why I say I come to this from a populist perspective is if you emanate yourself from what people's suffering is and you say, oh, they're they're struggling with their health insurer, they can't get broadband, whatever it is, we need to figure out a solution for that. And then we need to make politics work for it rather than to say, well, I mean, I hear you got a problem with your insurer, but you know, it happens to be that politically you're on the wrong side of this one, so we can't engage on this one. I think that's not the way a lot of my friends think, is like, well, let's force the politics to work for people. So Faz, I know something I think I've seen you speak to, and I know it's important to you, is you know, really digging into the numbers of what happened in 2020. Now, listen, Joe Biden won. It was a decisive electoral college victory. We were able to win states like Georgia and Arizona, but it was close. So I think it's important for us to celebrate the wins, but realistic about where we are. The other thing I'll reflect on, this is Donald Trump, a deeply unpopular president who mishandled the pandemic, had a recession, and he almost fucking won re-election. Now, I hate to give Trump any credit, but he does have some unique ability to drive turnout and to get people involved in politics who might not have been. And all the data is not in yet, but as we get more data in about 2020, Kind of where do you think things stand? I'll kick it off with my question, right, which is, you know, does Democratic intensity continue for a third election cycle or a fourth? And I think obviously, as as we've learned, if one party has a decisive turnout advantage, that can be decisive and overwhelm whatever's going on with swing voters. But I just love to see, like, what do you think as you look at the results from 2020? What are positive trends Democrats should lean into and intensify? Where are you gravely concerned? David, I think you raised that question. It is the one that still hangs on my head. The real takeaway from 2020 election is not that Joe Biden won. We're all happy and proud of that. To me, it was that Donald Trump won millions more votes and came pretty damn close to winning. I would urge all Democrats to try to reckon with it and try to figure out what's going on here. What takeaways do we have from that to adjust and respond to? One of the most maniacal presidents you can imagine in every which way, hateful, and yet winning Many more votes among people of color in some areas, you know, think of the Rio Grande Valley, places we've been trying to reach out to for a while. He gets people out. I think that one of the challenges that I have and I'm trying to think through is the class dimension and how much it plays into this now. And increasingly, you have a Democratic Party that used to be associated with blue-collar working-class people. And if you saw the outcome of this election, you see more working-class people than ever before going to Donald Trump. You're right that his candidate effects, as pollsters would refer to it, and uh, uh, all of that. But he's the big Mac candidate who says he's fighting for working class people. It also gives off that effect. You look at the end of that campaign where he's out there saying, I got COVID. I'm right back out there. I know you have to go bag groceries. I'm back out there, too, and win your vote. And I I certainly think, despite how dangerous that was, he certainly sent a message to working class people that, hey, I'm going to get out there and hustle for this. And I think there's something about, to me, 
thinking about a democratic party that realigns with working class, that is very much in front of mind, that I do think we have this historic opportunity with Joe Biden as president, a democratic house to democratic Senate, to do those kinds of things, to align with Amazon workers who are trying to fight for you know union down there in Alabama, across the country, you see a kind of an awakening. And it is a test, I think, if we can have that class-based lens that infects not only how we campaign, but importantly, how we govern. And I think if you look at the kind of trajectory of direct payments, you you think of who does direct payments benefit? Well, it's not unemployed checks, right? It's not for the unemployed. Direct payments is also helping working class people, people who are struggling to get by. So I think in many ways, I think we're correcting for it, but it's important that we maintain this thread, advertise it, market, and tell the story of how we're stepping out, hopefully to reverse the trend that Republicans could come back with a vengeance. Yeah, super smart, Fez. I often reflect and speak to what I think is the false choice. Like, is it base or is it swing? And, you know, in any swing district or state, it's just basic math. You can't get there with one or the other. You need them all. If somehow the Republicans were able to increase consistently with white non-college voters, let's say the Trump 16 margins become just what it is every time, and they're able to add even just 5 to 10% non-college minority voters, you know, maybe in 2040, we're going to be okay, but we're going to lose a lot more elections than not. And that's my answer to everybody. It's we have to do it all. We have to run campaigns and recruit candidates who can speak to steel workers in Marshdown, Iowa, young Latino voters in Miami-Dade County, and do really well with suburban uh, college-educated women outside of Philadelphia. Like, we have to do it all. Battleground will be right back after a few messages. We're back with Amanda Littman and Faz Shakir. So Amanda, I think in the world we live in today with social media, there's no news cycles anymore with just one constant news cycle. Everything seems like the most important moment in the history of the world. But I do think that if federal voting rights legislation is not passed, you know, our democracy may end uh, in four years. Kind of what's your view on that? I mean, is this an existential moment where if we don't find a way to pass that to protect our country and our citizens. Nothing else really matters in a way. What's your view on this? I 100% agree, and I would even take it a step further. I think if we don't kill the filibuster in order to pass the federal voting rights reform, H.R. 1, the new Voting Rights Act, we are going to have Trump 2.0 and 3.0 and 4.0, but confident, a little bit better at being less corrupt, and without any constraints for reputation. What does competent fascism in America look like? We're going to find out. It will be terrifying. And I say this because I think it's worth calling out. Even if Trump is never on the ballot again, Trumpism is. His acolytes and his people are the Republican Party. The Republican Party's official platform in 2020 was whatever Trump says is good. 500 more state and local Republican elected officials participated in it or encouraged the insurrection. Countless more are spreading the big lie. They are pushing forward this voter suppression stuff, more than 250 bills across two thirds of the country, because they know it is the only way they can win elections. And when they win elections, what they want to do is Trumpism everywhere, all the time, all the places, all the elections, but probably better. It baffles the mind that there is not like hair on fire, five alarm, democracy is ending moments here. And that even a single Democratic senator could think that an archaic Senate procedural tool that has mostly been used to prevent civil rights legislation from passing in the first place is worth protecting over the fundamental system of democracy that our country is based off of. I 
I don't understand how this doesn't make everyone angry every minute of every day until it's done, because nothing is more important than our democratic process. Well, that's a disconcerting scenario you just laid out. And I agree that. And what's interesting is you don't have a single Democratic senator that I've seen suggest they have a problem with what's in the voting rights legislation. So it is just this bullshit procedural thing. And, and I think everything rides on this. Listen, I would rather be us than them. So to be clear, but I think the biggest mistake you can make in life is underestimate your opponent. Even if it's a 25% scenario, that they can win what they need to over the next four years. You better not underestimate that. You better not underestimate their strategy. I see this all the time in politics, business. An opponent comes out with a new ad or a new strategy, and you know the instinct is to say, well, that's terrible. That's a bad idea. And I always remind people, well, a bunch of people who are pretty smart spend a lot of time thinking about this, and they've decided this is their way to succeed. So before you discount it, you better understand what they think. What are they seeing? You know, and we saw that with the Trump campaign. Like in 16, they had a core theory about how they'd win, and they executed on it. Mm-hmm. Wasn't quite enough, but they executed on it. But I'd rather be us than them. I think we have a lot more assets. We clearly have the right arguments. I think we have demographic trends. I think the work that you and others are doing to get more interesting, relatable people involved in politics and running for office, you don't really see that on the Republican side. Like, we've got a bunch of advantages. So I'm so excited to see what Amanda and Faz do with the podcast. And I know that you both have things that you're super interested uh, to dive into here. I'll start with you, Amanda. What are you most excited about? Like what topics do you want to dig into? What type of guests? I'll be an avid listener, so uh, I'll find out. But I'm curious here as you guys are starting to piece together what you're going to be doing, kind of what gets you most excited about what you're going to bring to listeners. We have a really expansive view of what this podcast could be. Faz and I come, I think, of this from sort of different experiences, but a similar amount of curiosity on like, why is it working this way? What can we fix? And how can we fix it? So I am really excited to to get some of the smartest people like under the spotlight to really answer my questions on why is it broken? And and what can we be doing better at the moment to make it to make it not so? That's awesome. And Faz, I'm curious, as you think about the types of guests and topics you want to delve on to the podcast, I think it'd be great for our listeners to know what uh, you're thinking about so they have some expectation and excitement about what you guys are going to be bringing forward. Well, I'm interested in why people think the way they think, and I'm interested in uh, trying to get into the philosophy of those who might disagree with us, those who, you know, good-natured disagreement or potentially even ill-natured disagreement. And so try to get a little bit behind the reasons why philosophically, unpack that. And obviously that has a lot of meaningful impact on elections and why people vote the way they do, the messages that they hear, what lessons we can learn about reaching people who already aren't fully with us. I think that's spot on. Battleground will be back after a few messages. And when we come back, I will be off the mic and your new hosts, Amanda Lippman and Faz Shakir, will take it from here. Welcome back to the new Battleground. I am Amanda Lippman. I am so excited with our official new co-host, Faz Shakir. Hey, Amanda. How are you feeling, Faz? Are you excited? Yes, yes. I'd love to make sure we're talking about where the rubber meets the road, right? We can often have these kind of deep oh, this is why things are wrong in society and we should try to fix them. Mm -hmm. But what are the specific challenges and what could you specifically do to alter the course of it? Whether it's in the course of political machinery or various narrative things that we could think about, basically dive a little bit deeper as to who is in the way, 
why does this not work the way we expect it to? And what specific changes would you want to make to the system to make it work better? One of the things I hope that we're able to do is really illuminate for people like in the many ways in which politics is ideological and nuanced. It's also very much an industry. And there's some like real business incentives that sort of hamper what's possible and like how we balance that. I don't know if I'm explaining it very well. You are. American society. (laughs) It's true. I mean, money has a major impact in essentially all facets of American life and not too surprising politics itself. And people know that donors contribute to candidates, Mm -hmm. but there's people who run campaigns and make certain decisions. There's technology and people who employ those technologies and consultants, obviously. So when you start looking at it that way, Amanda, right, it becomes far more of a little bubble (laughs) that you're operating within. Yeah. Um, So I hope some of the conversations we'll be able to have over the course of the show really dig into that and try and untangle the messy knots that some of these problems come out of. Amanda, who are some of the people that you think would be interesting to talk to as we get into this podcast? Well, I always have a fascination with who makes the decisions on what the discourse, quote unquote, is. And I think in a lot of situations, what drives that is what's happening on cable news. We know who the hosts are. We know who the journalists are. Who are the people deciding who the guests are? How does an MSNBC booker determine who to bring on air? And I want to talk to someone from Sinclair News and understand that thought process. Or an op-ed editor. I want to understand the people who make the decisions that drive the conversation the rest of us are having. How about you? What is the the question you want to answer? Well, on that one, I couldn't agree with you more. In fact, this was a sore spot (laughs) for our Bernie Sanders campaign. (laughs) We were often complaining to bookers about, hey, we have a difference of ideology and opinion within the Democratic Party itself, right? So if you'd hear from a booker, oh, we've got a Democratic strategist. I'm like, yeah, nine out of 10 of those Democratic strategists don't like Bernie Sanders. So like, (laughs) how about we try to find somebody who's just slightly more amenable? And in fact, we went behind the scenes and met with NBC president, Phil Griffin and others to kind of raise this issue. You know, we made some headway, but I think you're absolutely right. Especially nowadays with cable, CNN, MSNBC, Fox, it tends to be that they are setting the narratives that determine how people should think and who makes those decisions. Like if you wanted to be a cable news guest contributor, how does that happen? Mm-hmm. How does one get to be a cable news contributor? <laughs> Amanda, do you know? Asking for a friend. <laughs> yes. No, I'm asking for a friend. Uh, but I, I mean, it's really like, what does it mean when someone gets paid by CNN? How does that change how they talk about the news? And it feels like a small thing, but it's actually a really important part of driving the conversation. Not to get too philosophical about it, but I had this debate with Brian Selter from the CNN about this on air one time. Mm -hmm. I suggested that sometimes the advertising money on these networks might influence the way you think. And he's like, oh, you know, some of us are not specifically kind of know who those advertisers are. And that's I think that's right. But what you actually have is this conditioning effect. And I think to the point that you're just raising the conditioning of just knowing when you step foot on CNN or MSNBC or Fox, you kind of know the parameters you know, what you're not supposed to say. Mm-hmm. And that has been conditioned over a long period of time. And I think that especially when you have a society that grows continually unequal and you have people who are the haves and the haves nots, how much are those folks who are projecting out aware of that are thinking about breaking people into it that are not already in the bubble of the haves? And that influences story selection, who's out there talking about issues all the time. How much of that selection is driven by what the right story or what the real story is versus what will make for good television? And not that one is necessarily the right or wrong answer. I mean, I have a theory, but 
the capitalist incentives here make it so that it gets really fucked very quickly. Yeah, infotainment for sure. That's a problem. But I think you'd probably agree that if you just challenge the notions of doing content that is educational, informative by challenging who's going to speak to it. The first thing that came to my head, mm-hmm. man, I was like, oh, these, these folks are organizing in Bessemer, Alabama for a union. Just courageous, interesting life stories that you could bring to life if you wanted to hear them and put them on a cable show. You have to go do some work to find them, to bring them on air, right? <laughs> and and I think it would be interesting. But that's where you got to kind of compel and force that kind of action to occur, because otherwise status quo isn't probably going to bring their voices on air. I have a crazy idea. Let's bring someone on who's organizing the Union Drive down in Alabama. We can do that. <laughs> I think that's a fantastic idea. And, you know, there's so many wonderful people. I've gotten to know some of them down there who've been speaking out. There's a guy named Daryl Richardson who has a wonderful compelling story about how he started Googling to find a union to see who might support them in their efforts. And obviously, they landed with the retail workers. Some of the organizers down there doing heroic work that I think it would be wonderful to hear from. Let's do it. On the score, the election ends on March 29th. And I think our first show will air on April 8th. I suspect right now that that election, if it stopped today, they would win. And it will be counted on April 2nd. So scheduling wise, you would basically be in the fallout of knock on wood, a win on their part. I am so unfamiliar with how union organizing actually works (laughs) that I am happy to like, I really want, I want to ask questions like, What does it mean to have a conversation about going up against your boss in an environment like that? Like, how does that feel? I'm very curious. I mean, another story that I had in my mind is uh, as a native Floridian raised there, (laughs) the state of the Democratic Party in in that state, I know you've worked there. Why isn't it stronger? (laughs) I think about it, too, especially in contrast to a place like Nevada, in that why isn't the Nevada Democratic Party strong and the Florida Democratic Party weak? Like, why are there so many people in the White House right now who worked in Nevada and very few who worked in Florida? Pulling Nevada out as an example here, but what makes a state's party survive, thrive, fall apart? What makes people want to work there? Ostensibly, it should be really interesting. And like the elections there are always really close. Why does it fail? Yeah. (laughs) And how can we save it? How can we save it? You remember, Amanda, back in the day, there used to be Democratic governors of Florida, Democratic senators, Mm -hmm. Bob Grimm and others from the state. And it seems like increasingly just kind of been withering on the vine there. And there's like some structural stuff at play about, you know, the ways in which campaign finance law works in Florida make it sort of a wild, wild, I guess, East Coast where money can go everywhere but the party. There's like a candidate issue. There's an organizing issue. There's a demographic issue. I think we should try and find someone who can answer questions for us like, what happened with Florida? And <laughs> yes. maybe also like, <laughs> where, where's the good? <laughs> What's the good example of what could happen? Right. We've heard about what happened to Kansas, but now we got to get to Florida. <laughs> this will be a fun one to cover. I look forward to having this conversation with you and learning more about what the hell is going on in the state of Florida. Faz, you mentioned in talking to David that you were looking forward to having big, messy, philosophical, adversarial, knockdown, drag out fights is what I heard. Is that what you're thinking? What are you hoping to do here? Not knock down, drag out fights, but I really am kind of interested in this question around why is Trump winning more votes? What's going on with conservatives and independents who might be moving in that direction? What do we need to do to win more of them? And I think you've got to challenge our own 
understandings of it. Listen to people who don't agree with us and ask them, what do you think is going on with independents, working class people moving to the Republican side? What is it that's resonating? Because from our vantage point, of course, all we see is corporate corruption. (laughs) The agenda doesn't make any sense to us. Why would you want to move to Donald Trump and vote for him for the first time? Well, let's talk to some people who either have done it or have analyzed why that's happening to get a sense of it. I just think not enough Democrats have reconciled or grappled with why is that crazy brand actually attractive to some people out there? So you want us to go to some diners in Ohio and ask people what they're thinking? <laughs> yeah, you know, diners, like think of some working class people out there. You know, you think of the Rio Grande Valley. I saw even places like Harlem and out in L.A., there were some new Trump voters and communities of color. What was going on there? Why did people move to him for the first time? It's a worrying trend. And from my own vantage point, I think that there's something to be said about us speaking to class dimension better. But I'd love to know what it is that non-college educated person living in New York or Los Angeles or anywhere in the the country, quite frankly, even in Georgia, why did they vote for Donald Trump for the first time? Why did he have some appeal? That's a question for the ages. (laughs) Well, I am really excited to have those kinds of conversations with you. You're one of the smartest people of the party, and you know this world better than anyone. So I'm really excited to dig in. This is going to be fun. Same. This is going to be fun. So seems like we've got our first guest. We're going to have a union organizer from Alabama to come join us for our first episode, which will be dropping April 8th. Episodes will now start dropping on Thursdays. So keep an eye on wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have ideas for who else you want to hear, Faz and I talk to, tweet at the recount, hashtag battleground. We want to know who you want us to ask all the hard and easy questions of. Battleground is a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. If you enjoyed the episode, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Leah Jackson and David Wilson engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams did research for this episode. And Christian Castro-Russell is our executive producer.